program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. So it's a pleasure for me to be here and be invited to give this lunch hour lecture. And um, I work at UCL, just around the corner, um, at UCL Centre for Pre-Implantation Genetics and Diagnosis. And I also work at the CRGH, which is the Centre for Reproductive and Genetics Health, which is the IVF unit, um, the private IVF unit that's at the Eastman Dental Hospital. And both of these departments fall under the Institute for Women's Health, which is a quite new uh, institute within uh, UCL. And I also helped set up um, the, the ESHRA PGD Consortium, which we set up in 1997, and I've been chair of this for many years. And ESHRA is the European Society for Human Reproduction and Embryology. I'm going to show you some of the uh, data from the ESHRA PGD Consortium during my talk. But uh, I want my talk to be quite controversial. I want to give you some food for thought. So this is what I'm going to cover. I'm just going to give you the very basics of in vitro fertilization. I wish I could give you a whole lecture about that. There's some really interesting things that are happening. Um, again, some quite controversial things. I'll touch on a very few of those, um, but I'm just going to give you some basics. And then just a little bit about where we are currently with genetic testing and where we're going to go in the future. And then concentrate on what we do here at UCL, which is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, where we're testing embryos for genetic disease. And then I'm going to finish off with some ethical thoughts and also the future and I hope to leave you with some food for thought and maybe things that you'd like to to go and read up a little bit more on. So where did this all start? Well it all started uh, in the uh, 70s. There were a number of groups around the world that were trying to help infertile couples have children. So what they wanted to do was collect the eggs and the sperm and mix them in the laboratory, so in vitro to generate embryos and then transfer these back to infertile patients and help them establish a pre pregnancy. And it was actually Bob Edwards here, along with Patrick Steptoe, that were the first who actually were successful in getting a delivery. And this was Louise Brown that was born in 1978. This is a picture of her at the top uh, with her uh, her, her own child and we were all very pleased everyone in the field was pleased that Robert Edwards last year was awarded the Nobel Prize and this is something that probably affects some of you in this room it certainly affected me this is a picture of my son at the bottom um, he was born by IVF he's, he's eight now and I also have IVF twins that were born after frozen embryos so um, I'm sure some of you here are also touched by these things so how do we do IVF? Well, for IVF, we, um, the basic procedure that we use is we stimulate the woman to produce multiple eggs. And when we collect the eggs, I'm sorry, the laser point, oh, it does work. Someone said it didn't work. It does work. Good. <laughs> um, this is the human egg here. And um, you should just about see, but you will see in the next photos, there's a membrane surrounding the egg. It's like a shell. We call it the zona pellucida. It's a special glycoprotein coat. And these cells are radiating in the cumulus cells, which help nourish the egg at the early stage. Ages. So we collect these eggs from a woman, normally about eight or ten eggs. We mix it with a prepared sample of sperm and then we monitor that in our laboratory and um, watch the development. Now, in, the, um, in the 1992, the group in Brussels, uh, led by Palermo and Van Sturtecum, they developed a technique to help male infertility. So if we have men with very low sperm counts, or even with no sperm in their ejaculate, but they are producing sperm in the testes, which we can aspirate, we can take these very low numbers of sperm, and we can do this procedure called ICSI. And you'll see here, there's the sperm there. It's being injected. This is the zone of pellucida. Here, it's being injected through there. It's being pierced into the centre of the egg. We're sucking up some of the cytoplasm here. 
and then depositing. And this video was done by Alpesh Doshi at the CRGH. And this, is, this procedure is used internationally now. There's, I don't think there's any IVF unit that's not doing ICSI for male infertility. And as you can see, it's quite an quite a invasive procedure and quite different to nature. So I ho hope that's probably the first food for thought, what, you're actually, what we're actually doing with this technology. But in the IVF lab, we'll monitor the embryo if it's created by ICSI or by uh, just mixing the eggs and the sperm. We'll then monitor the embryo. On day one, we hope to see fertilization. This is a zygote. This is a, the male and female pronuclei are here. And these structures here are called the polar bodies. They're an excess from um, formation of the egg during meiosis. And we'll monitor the embryos for the next few days. They'll start to divide. And this is a two-cell human embryo and then a four-cell. And then next day, hopefully on day three, this is a really lovely eight-cell embryo. And over the next few days, we can still monitor the embryos, and they form blastocysts, and they will hatch from this zona pellucida. And if they're in the uterus, these are very good embryos, and hopefully they'll implant in the uterus and lead to a pregnancy. And it's at these stages that in IVF, we normally transfer the embryos. We normally transfer them either on day three, or what's becoming popular for certain patients is blastocyst transfer. So let's move on to genetic testing. We've got the basics of how we do IVF. Well, the molecules of, of life, obviously, is uh, the DNA. And the DNA, as I'm sure you know, is packed in chromosomes. And it's formed by this double helix. And the genetic code is what we want to look at in genetic testing. And the genetic code is made up of these bases, this G, C, A, and T, which is shown here. And that's what we're going to look at to see whether there's a genetic disease or any gene other genetic issue. So genetic diseases, they can be chromosome abnormalities. So these are quite gross abnormalities where there's um, maybe two chromosomes have break, broken and swapped around their genetic material, which is translocations, or there can be other types of inherited abnormalities with the chromosomes. Or we can be right down at the level of the gene, and there can be errors, very small errors. Even sometimes just one base is wrong in the genetic code for a gene, and then we can see that um, this, leads, this can lead to a disease. And there's three main ways. Actually, genetics has got much more complicated in recent years, but there's basically three main main ways that dis single gene disorders that just affect one gene are transmitted. Recessive is where both the parents have to have a faulty gene to be at risk of transmitting that to their child. So the child will only have the disease if both of the genes are faulty, and that totally knocks out the gene. You can get dominant diseases where just one, uh, one of the couple carry the uh, faulty gene, and these are often late-onset diseases, so the person carrying the gene may well uh, get that disease later in life. And then extinct diseases are carried by the mother. These are genes that are abnormal on the X chromosome. They're carried by the mother and by females in the family, but they're transmitted to the males, and the males can be affected. So that's sort of genetic diseases. How we do, do, do we do the genetic testing? And there's, again, many, many ways. I'm just going to show you the uh, main methods that have been used for genetic testing, and many of these have been used in the Human Genome Mapping Project. So if we want to look at chromosomes, the gold standard technique that's been around for decades has been karyotyping, and this is where we band the individual chromosomes and look at their banding pattern to see whether the chromosomes are normal or abnormal. But these, this method does not tell us anything about the genes. We can also use a technique called fluorescent in-situ hybridization, which uses little fluorescent pieces of DNA that bind to specific chromosomes. And this is a fish image here. These will light up 
just specific regions of chromosomes. Now, if we want to look at genes, so if we want to look at a specific gene abnormality, the main technique has been the polymerase chain reaction, and it's like a molecular photocopy. It will just copy the segment of a gene many, many times, so then more detailed analysis can be formed on that product to see what's happening with those genes. And something that's uh, becoming very, very popular now is actually sequencing. So this picture here is a sequencing of a gene, or, or an area of a gene, or, or even an area of uh, DNA that's not coding for a gene. And you can see here, here's the bases, T, T, G, T, A, and uh, these peaks are telling us actually what base is present in what position uh, in that particular sequence. But what's happening in the future now, you, oh, sorry, you can't actually see this, there's lots of dots uh, yellow dots on this picture here, but the new technology that's coming in now is the use of arrays or microchips, um, and these uh, arrays can tell us a lot of information about just even one cell uh, from an individual. And the two techniques are array comparative genomic hybridization, or CGH. This is a method where you can look at all of the chromosomes in a cell um, in, in one go, and I'll show you some images of that. And the other is a, a type of array called single nucleotide polymorphism array. And this is a method where we gain a huge amount of information from that sample that we're looking at. We, we, all, we look at the chromosomes, but we also look at the genes, and we can find out a lot of information. The trouble with these SNP arrays is at the moment we really don't know how to interpret a lot of the information that we get. So it's, it is being used, uh, brought in very slowly into the genetic diagnosis arena, um, but what this information means we're still trying to work out. So that's the Ray CGH and SNP arrays. So when can we do it? If a couple have a child or there's an adult in the family that we think has got a genetic uh, problem, then we can take some of their blood and do those genetic tests for the problem we think they've got and see if we can find the genetic reason for the abnormality. And if we find the genetic abnormality in a family, we may decide to test the rest of the family to try and see who else is at risk and, and find out as much information as we can about the genetics of that family. We would normally do a pedigree analysis where we analyze as many um, of the family as we can. But there's certain genetic diseases that are specific or, or certainly very prevalent in certain groups of, um, of patients and certain countries and certain ethnic groups in, in different countries. So, for example, in Sardinia, they have a, a, a huge issue with beta thalassemia, which has pockets of, of problemed areas throughout the world. And so in these populations where they're at very high risk of a specific genetic disease, they may do screening where they screen the population to find out if anyone's at risk. But what's happening more now is that there are certain groups of, um, of cultures that are actually testing before marriage. So those that I've heard that there are several cultures that, are that do arranged marriages. They don't just look at your family and your income, etc., and your, whether you've been to university. They also look at your genetic code and see whether you're carrying any genetic diseases. I've heard, heard this from three very different groups of, of, um, of well, different countries where this has now become quite common practice. So if this... If we're finding that the family or an individual is at risk of transmitting a genetic disease, then the couple have to decide what they would like to do if they want to try and have a, a family that's free from this disease. And the main techniques that they're offered to them, there are several others, but the main procedure that people would go through if they want to have a family with, uh, without that genetic problem is an amniocentesis or a chorionic villus sampling. And this is done where the person's already pregnant. So the woman's pregnant, an amniocentesis, we take a 
a bit of the amniotic fluid that surrounds the fetus and tests that. And chorionic villus sampling, we take a bit of the placenta and we do the genetic testing on that. So the main problem with prenatal diagnosis is the pregnancy is already established. So if the couple feel that this disease is very serious and they, they do not want to transmit to this to their child, they have to decide if they want to continue with the pregnancy or whether they want to undergo termination of pregnancy. And for any family, this is a terrible, terrible decision to have to be in. So this is why pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, testing the embryo, the early embryo, before it actually implants, this is exactly why this technique was developed. Now, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis... Sorry, I meant to turn the lights down. Anyway, that here, I'll try and turn them down. Sorry. I don't know if that's that easy. No, I can't do it. Okay, maybe they can turn the lights down. Oh, they are turn the lights down. Right. We are high-tech. Sorry, this picture's a bit dark. So, PGD was actually developed at the Hammersmith Hospital. So, we've been very good in the UK. We've got the, the first IVF baby, which was from Bourne Hall in Cambridge, and then the Hammersmith Hospital in 1988 with the first PGD baby. And I hope you can just about see there, this is a, an old picture of us in, uh, in Israel at a conference in the early 90s. This is Alan Handyside, who was the embryologist that was involved with the first PGD. And Marilyn Monk is here, who was also one of the pioneers that did a lot of the mouse work. And uh, this is uh, uh, Robert Winston. Uh, I think you will know who, what he looks like. Um, so he's, he's there, and he was the clinical person involved. And uh, That's me, actually. Uh, this is uh, Mark Hughes, who's also been very involved. He, he is from the US, and he came to the Hammersmith in the uh, early 90s, and he was involved with diagnosing the first... Uh, PGD for cystic fibrosis. So now this is spread throughout the world and there's many, many centres that, that do this uh, procedure. So how do we do it? There's two stages. The couple have to go through IVF. We get the embryos in our lab and we're going to take out some of the cells from the embryo and then we're going to do our single cell diagnosis. And there's three stages that we can take cells. I mentioned when I showed you the zygote, those polar bodies. There's two polar bodies that are formed during formation of the egg, during oogenesis. And these can be taken out, both of these in polar body biopsy. They can be taken out, and from them we can determine a reflection of what the chromosomes and the genes are within the egg. So this will only tell us about the mother's genes and the mother's chromosomes. It will not tell us anything else about the actual embryo's chromosomes, because then we'll have the paternal uh, contribution. The majority of centres have done this procedure, which is called cleavage stage biopsy. And this is how we originally did PGD, and it's still the most common procedure today. And I'm going to show you a video of how we take these cells from the embryo. But now a lot of people are doing it at the blastocyst stage, at about uh, day five of development, you can take these trovectoderm cells, which are going to go up and make the placenta. It doesn't actually affect the inner cell mass, which will go and make the, the fetus. But you can take these and find out about the genes of the embryo. So this is a, a short video uh, showing you uh, embryo biopsy. And the first stage there was making a hole in the zona pellucida. So here's the zone. You can just about see that around the outside. And we need to make this hole so that we can gain access. And this pipette here is just going to gently aspirate one of these cells from the embryo. And trophectoderm biopsy is very similar. We're just going to take some of the trophectoderm cells from the embryo. So once we've got our single cell, then we can apply the, the diagnosis to that.
So for PTD, we use the same techniques that are used in genetic testing. We can use PCR to look at mutations in specific genes. We can use FISH to look at chromosomes. And we can also, more recently, are using these arrays. This array comparative genomic hybridization and these single nucleotide polymorphism arrays. And I haven't got time, unfortunately, to tell you more about them. But if you uh, visit this paper that I wrote with Gary Harton uh, last year, um, we've written a review on the current use of arrays in PGD. So this is some of the data from ESHRA. In ESHRA, we collect data every year, and uh, we publish this data. And you can find these, these papers are on open access, and you can get these on the ESHRA, PG, uh, the ESHRA website for the PGD Consortium. But the most common diseases that are diagnosed are those that are very serious diseases and those that are very, very common in, in the general population. Um, something that I'm going to bring in, in is testing for things that are not so important and not so life-threatening. In the UK, we are very lucky. We are governed by the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority. Hopefully still in the future, their, um, their future is a little bit bleak at the moment because they're merging with another um, big group. But at the moment, the HFEA regulates all the diagnosis that we do. So to do a genetic diagnosis, we have to, for, by PGD, we have to have permission from the HFEA. And if you're interested in what is and what is not um, allowed at the moment, if you go to the HFEA website, it will list everything that they've licensed, all the diseases that are licensed for by PGD. And there have been some controversial ones on there that have been actually slightly taken out of content. There was one that said that they've licensed a, um, PGD for a squint, and it's not actually a squint. It's actually a much more involved disease. And also, diseases do vary in different families. As I said, genetics is not that, that easy anymore. It's things that get very complicated. And this is um, some work that we've done in our own centre using this array CGH. Uh, Siobhan Sengupta is uh, in charge of all our diagnosis. And this was one of our PhD students, Thalia Mamas, who has taken single cells and applied these on this array. And from this, we can look at all of the chromosomes from a single cell. So these are the chromosomes listed here, 1 to 22 plus X and Y. And anything within this line is normal. Anything above the line, there's an extra copy of the chromosome. And so this one's actually trisomy 10. There's an extra copy of chromosome 10 in this single cell. And in this cell here, you might see there's several uh, chromosomes below the line and several above the line. This is a, a very, very abnormal cell. Now, I just want to briefly mention a slight uh, tangent to PGD, and that's that this technology has been used for a slightly different aim. Uh, rather than patients with inherit specific inherited disorders, the technology has been used for something that's been called pre-implantation genetic screening, or PGS. And this is using the techniques that we look at the chromosomes, not specific genes, but just looking at the chromosomes, and using this in our IVF patients, so these are infertile patients, to help embryo selection. We certainly know that as women age, the, um, the chromosomes are more likely to be abnormal. There's an increase in Down syndrome, etc. So this technique has really been used to try and improve delivery rates in these couples and help identify abnormal embryos. But unfortunately, there's no evidence at the moment to show that this does improve delivery rates. And there's been a lot of press about this uh, because there's people saying, oh, we can get a 70% pregnancy rate using this technology. But unfortunately, there is no data at the moment to show that this procedure does help delivery rates. But I wanted to explain that to you because this is a summary of our data. Uh, we 
did the last publication uh, last year, and there's another one due out this year. These are the years of our data collection, and um, this is PGS. You see PGS, this um, genetic well, chromosome analysis for infertile patients, actually counts for more than all the PGDs put together. So we separate the genetic disease into sexing for extinct disease, chromosome abnormalities, and monogenical single gene abnormalities. But I want to point out here now social sexing. And uh, this is a controversial use, and I'm going to come back to that in a moment. So the issues around PGD have been not that we're using it to help couples that are at risk of serious genetic abnormality have a, a, a normal child, but that we're designing babies. Now, we're not designing anything. If we're designing babies, we'd be doing gene therapy and moving the genes around and changing everything. We are selecting the embryos that those, those patients have and putting back embryos that are free from a genetic disease. We are selecting, but we're not designing. But this headline here is babies created to save their brother. And the, probably the most famous case of this is there's a famous basketball player called, called Carlos Buza, and he had a child here that was affected by sickle cell disease. And this is a very, very serious disease of, of the blood. And the only way that he could cure this child was by having some uh, stem cells or some cord blood uh, from a matched donor. And the best matched donor is a sibling. So what they did is they went through PGD, um, and this was with Mark Hughes uh, in the USA. They went through PGD. They made sure that the embryos that they were going to pick for transfer did not have sickle cell disease. So that was number one. They did PGD for sickle cell disease, but they also made sure that they had embryos that were tissue matched for the already existing child. And they were very lucky they had these uh, twins, twins delivered. They took the cord blood uh, at the delivery of these twins and they used the cord blood um, cells to cure sickle cell in this child. And as a result, Carlos has donated um, a lot of money to help PGD, especially in Africa for couples that are having sickle cell disease. Now, I just wanted to show you, some of you may have read um, the book My Sister's Keeper, you might have seen this movie, and this is exactly the same situation. This is a, a family that are going through PGD. Most babies are accidents. Oh, I hope you can hear that. Not me. I was engineered, born to save my sister's life. Oops, sorry. So that child, as they said there, she was born to save her sister's life. And the child actually in the movie uh, that's already existing has actually leukemia. And they went through PGD in this story um, to uh, use the core blood. But then that didn't work. And the book's very different to the film. I won't say any more. But I just want to show you how Hollywood shows this. So going back to sex selection, uh, some couples feel that, well, certainly in the Western world, I think we I think we'd look at everything as a commodity and pe people really want to have a boy and a girl. That seems to be the perfect family. Um, I have three boys and I can't imagine having a girl in my family. And people keep saying to me, are you going to try for a girl? No, I'm not going to try for a girl. But this is how so many people think. Perfect family, boy and a girl. Oh, they're so lucky they've got a boy and a girl. And... It's supposedly banned in all European countries, uh, but certainly if you do this aneuploidy screening, this PGS, it does also determine the sex. And I know many patients that have actually come to us and said that they've had sex selection in a number of European countries. So it's much more widespread than reported, and it certainly is legal in some countries. It's legal in Australia, and it's legal in the US. And it's been done a lot in um, the Middle East. For example, in Jordan, they have a very active PGD program, and they're mainly selecting boys. It's something like 90 98%, um, I've been told, um, where they're selecting boys. And this is the trouble. In the developing world, many cultures 
um, do want boys. I've been told by a number of uh, Indian obstetricians that in the labour wards in, in India, if it's a boy, everyone's dancing in the corridor. If it's a girl, everyone's very quiet. And I've been told that a number of times. And I think people should um, have a read of this book, The First Century After Beatrice, excellent book where a pill's developed where when the woman takes this pill, she only has boys. And the problem, the international problem that develops in this is from the developing world. There can be no, not enough women to support the population. Robert Winston once said on TV, his sperm can fertilise the whole of the UK, which I, uh, did make me slightly worried. <laughs> um, but he's right. He is right. If, if in a population, to sustain the population, you only need a couple of men, they produce millions of sperm. But it takes nine months for a woman to have a child. And uh, just briefly, I'd like to show you this video. Would hey you there, trust these guys? The lab. I'm Daddy Clay. And I'm Daddy Brad. Whether or not they're willing to admit it, many of the expecting parents out there, for whatever reason, have a preference, boy or girl. And there are a lot of wives' tales out there about what you can do to make a boy or a girl. I find that a bit worrying. I found that very easily on the internet. And I'd just like to take that a little bit further. Someone said I shouldn't show this because I might get sued. Um, but if we look at Victoria Beckham, uh, there was a number of articles about what she should do to have a girl or a boy. Um, she made it very clear that she wanted a girl. They actually didn't mention PGD. They said she should eat more cheese, uh, delay motherhood, get stressed at work, uh, or look at the time to conception. Um, they didn't mention PGD. And then, of course... Um, she's got three boys. I don't know why she wanted to go. I've heard she wanted a girl. I won't say why she wanted a girl. I think she, she wanted a girl for various reasons. But this obviously then confirmed that she was carrying a baby girl. And they were living in the US at the time, so I don't know whether they did go through PGD. I always felt like phoning up and saying, well, if you really want one, you should go through PGD. So there's a number of ethical um, concerns. There's the safest siblings, the tissue matching I mentioned, sex selection. But... The issue around PGD has always been the non-life-threatening. Who decides? And these stipper rays, this is going to be a problem because this will be a situation where we can test for almost anything. And this is an article that came out, um, I think, in January, um, where preconception tests allowing prospective parents to screen for flawed DNA could eliminate childhood diseases. And it says here, it will be available in British fertility clinics within months. Well, I don't, know, I don't know exactly. We didn't really say what was going on there, but it's not available yet. So is this design of baby no longer fashionable? Well, let's look at some food for thought. Um, we've got frozen eggs here. Fr freezing of human eggs now is, is very successful. They're, I believe that in the US, they're going around campuses and telling all the girls to freeze their eggs so they can delay motherhood. We've, we will, I'm sure, have super eggs. But for many years, you've been able to go to a sperm bank in the USA and buy Nobel Prize winner's sperm. Um, if you want to do that, uh, we've got Dolly the Sheep here. I'm going to just very briefly mention stem cells as I finish off. Another book to revisit, Brave New World. Are we that far away? And I'm going to finish off showing you a clip from Gattaca. But let's look now at the celebrities. So here we've got Elton John. They were refused adoption, but they could use the technologies that we're looking at. So here's some famous couples that have adopted their um, accessory, their child that they want from their particular uh, ethnic group to, to add to their, their brood. Um, most people wouldn't do that, but obviously that's something they do. And where are we going from that? We're going from to egg donation and also to surrogacy. And you may have been aware, just read the title, Another Day, Another 47-Year-Old Celebrity Pregnant with Twins. And this is a website about egg donation, and it lists a number of famous people there. Uh, of, obviously of a very advanced maternal age, so they probably wouldn't be getting pregnant naturally. And then surrogacy as well. Well, um, Elton John 
would have to have had an egg donor and someone to carry his child. But again, some other famous people have done this recently. We've got here Nicole Kidman. Um, I don't know why she had surrogacy. And there, there's also a number of other people, Sarah Jessica Parker, etc. Um, and something that brings me on to another book that we should revisit, Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's Tale. This was a situation where in the, in the not too distant future, something had happened which affected fertility. And the rich people then took a young fertile woman into their home and she was their egg, and, uh, egg donor and their surrogate and she carried the child for the family. And unfortunately, I think that's already here. So I think uh, it really wasn't the not too distant future. So stem cells, there are two types of stem cells. There's embryonic stem cells, which we have to get from the inner cell mass of the embryo. There's induced pluripotent stem cells, which we can get from uh, an, an already existing adult. And the view is that we can use these stem cells to make all the tissues and repair ourselves. So if I needed a new heart tissue, I could take some of my skin stem cells and uh, make them uh, then differentiate into heart tissue and then use that for my treatment. Um, very expensive if we were trying to do this on the NHS. I don't know how the NHS is going to cope with this. But the embryonic stem cells, the problem here is tissue matching. We can't just take stem cells from an embryo and use that for me. It's not going to be tissue matched. I would actually reject it. But let's just, before we go on to cloning, look at some more frivolous use of stem cells. So um, anyway, there's always, there's always one, isn't there? So let's just look at cloning. Now, cloning is falls into two parts, therapeutic and reproductive. And basically, they're the same things. We take some of my skin. We take an egg, and this, this is one of the rate-limiting steps here. We need to get eggs from people. We take out the nucleus from the egg and put one of my skin cell nuclei in there, and we'd zap it, and hopefully it would make a blastocyst. If we're going to want some heart cardiac tissue for me, we can take that blastocyst, make stem cells, and then make my cardiac tissue and help my condition that I've got. So that's what therapeutic cloning is. Uh, again, not sure the NHS would do this for everyone that needed some new heart tissue. Um, and at the moment, as far as we're aware, we haven't got to this stage in the human. Um, if we decide to take this blastocyst, instead of make stem cells, we put that back in someone, maybe even myself, then that's reproductive cloning. There's a number of people that have claimed to do this. That's certainly how Dolly the sheep happened. This blastocyst here with her own cells in was transferred and, and she was delivered. And it's been done in numerous species. It is only a matter of time. Mary Warnock came to UCL a few years ago and she said, this will not be done in our lifetime. And I, I personally don't agree. I think this definitely will. There'll be some crazy person who will do this in our lifetime. And I'll show you, again, Hollywood's interpretation of this. You're clones. You're copies of people out here in the world. What? Clones. What? Copies? What are you talking Why? about? Why? Some hag trophy wife needs new skin for a facelift, or one of them gets sick and they need a new part. They, they take it from you. You need to see the film. <laughs> I'll stop there. So where are we going to be in the future? Now, I think uh, there's two companies that say they'll sequence your genetic code. Uh, they've got a lot of press about this. I know some people at Tufts uh, Medical College in Boston, and the dean of the medical school decided that all the staff um, run their blood through this, which was not a good idea. They found uh, some things they didn't want to find, some late onset issues within some of their staff. And all you have to do for $199, it was a $499, you get your kit, you, uh, 
you give them some saliva and then they send you this information. There's a couple of points just want to point out here. Learn from your DNA. Um, you'll find out about baldness, your muscle performance, and your risk for 99 diseases. Now, I apologize to all of those in the audience with red hair, but I just thought that this was um, something that uh, we should have a look at. You can also check your susceptibility to transmitting hair color. And of course, um, they're looking at uh, red versus non-red hair. Um, so I apologize for that. But um, have a look at that website. That's again, food for thought. That is just, it's just scary. It's very scary that that can be done. And the final video I want to show you, well, this is very loud, sorry. What can it mean? The ability to perfect the physical and mental characteristics of every unborn child. In the not-too-distant future, our DNA will determine everything about us. A minute drop of blood, saliva, or a single hair determines where you can work, who you should marry, what you're capable of achieving. So certainly the technology to do that is actually almost here. Hopefully we won't all reproduce, be reproducing by PGD and selecting the most fit embryos. But certainly the technology is here to do that. So I'd just like to thank you. This is um, our team, some past and um, present members of our team. Uh, my son was convinced this morning that this was a picture of him. I said, sorry, it's not a picture of him. But um, which baby would you choose? I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Wide-ranging and fascinating lecture. We've got about three minutes of questions. We need, we need three days, I think. <laughs> I will be outside as well if anyone has any other questions. Lewis, Lewis. No. No, that's another lecture, Lewis. That's another lecture. As I was saying, that's, not what, that's what we're not doing. Okay. Hopefully not yet. Bios. Question. This one at the back. Uh, as of a couple of years ago, it's illegal to prefer an embryo likely to develop a, a, a disease uh, over one that isn't. Um, that's very easy when you only know about one disease at a time through PGD. A bit more difficult when the embryo that's most genetically healthy and the one that's most morphologically healthy are different. How is it going to work or what are the consequences uh, if we're doing whole genome embryo testing and you know multiple things about several embryos and you can't pick one that's less healthy than the other. It's, it's a minefield. It's a total, total minefield. These SNP arrays are going to tell us so much. I mean, even in prenatal diagnosis now, when they've got a, an amniocentesis or a CVS and they're using these SNP arrays, they don't know how to, we don't know how to interpret the information we've got now. There's so much information. Sometimes the fetus looks like it's got a really serious abnormality. We test the parents and find out that they've got the same thing. We just don't know enough about the genetic code at the moment. So it will take several years to really understand the information that we get. But when we do understand it, how we choose one over the other, oh, it's going to be very well. That's why I'm glad at the moment we've got the HFEA. So I don't want them to go away, because I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a minefield. There's no answer to that. 
It's going to be tricky. There was one question here. All oh, right. Yes. Yes. So we're lucky we've got the HFEA. <laughs> They're our buffer. Um, you know, in, in other countries, they don't have that, and it's, it's going to be complicated. Well, they're, they're, they're the admiration of the world, actually. It's absurd, yeah, no, they are. It's absurd that anyone would want to abolish it. Yes. Anybody got any other questions? Hopefully there's some food for thought, though. <laughs> Hopefully there's some books and websites you'll go and visit. On everyone's behalf, then, let me thank Dr Harper for giving us a very stimulating lecture. To find out more about UCL please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk.